This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning for our 33rd consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. The statistics are still staggering. In the United States, we now have over 233,000 dead Americans as a result of this virus and over 9 million confirmed cases. Just on October 30th, yesterday, we had 993 cases of death. So more than 993 dead Americans yesterday from COVID-19. In the United States today, one person is diagnosed with COVID-19 every second. One death in this country occurs every two minutes, based on yesterday's statistics. Every two minutes, an American dies related to this virus. It has affected us adversely here in Connecticut. Our positivity rate is up to 6.1%. We were cruising below 1% and a little bit above 1%. We're now at 6.1%. What does that mean? That means there are over 71,000 confirmed diagnoses. Yesterday, 761 new diagnoses of COVID-19 and over 4,600 dead citizens in Connecticut, seven more lost their lives yesterday to this virus. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it at the base level. As many of you know, we're doing a lot of testing for fighters. At Hartford Healthcare, we are testing athletes who come to Connecticut to participate. And we're seeing an increase in the number of athletes who are testing positive from around the country before they're allowed to get on a plane and come to Connecticut. That's a good thing. Okay? That's a good thing that we're doing in athletes, and we should be doing in everybody and sticking with the governor's guidelines in this situation. So before they can come here, they are tested. The question becomes, what have we really learned, and what are we doing to keep this number down? We really should look back. You know, history repeats itself, right? So in 1918, as we all know, we had a Spanish flu pandemic. It came on the same time of year as did the COVID-19 pandemic. And in those first months, meaning the six or seven months we're into now, in the Spanish flu pandemic, we had 75,000 American deaths from Spanish flu. Looking at it now, the country was only one-third the size. Our population was only one-third the size. So if we compare it to today, we would have 
225,000 deaths. So the COVID-19 pandemic is tracking perfectly with the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. It's tracking the same way. Despite the best technology of 100 years, right? We didn't have ICUs then. We didn't have all these tests to try and find out where the flu was. We didn't have any treatments. But yet we still have the number of deaths that we had then in this country today. We have so much knowledge about this virus. But it bewilders us as to why we haven't taken enough action. And that's really been the problem. So right now, we're faced with going back to and trying to use the same public health guidelines that we learned in 1918, right? We need to identify where the virus is, isolate the virus, and tra trace the virus. Those are the things that got us out of that problem. And we figured out that certain things work. We figured that out 100 years ago. Masks, social distancing, and washing your hands are the key items that work. And yet, there is resistance to this. We still have people going on TV and tweeting who claim to be doctors to say, wait a second, masks don't work. They work. Some of the foolishness behind this is that people think that masks protect them. You wear a mask to protect others. Another grassroots thing, I, I was at the dry cleaner the other day. Been going to the same dry cleaner for many years. He's been in business 41 years. Started out with his dad. And I noticed that he's the only guy working there when I go in. So I asked him, and he said, business is so bad because people are not going to work. I have one guy come in part-time in the afternoon to help me out while I work the presses. He said to me, Dr. Alessi, he said, what is it that people don't understand? We're Americans. Americans can take bad news. Americans can get their way out of anything. But yet people aren't wearing masks to help get rid of this virus. And I'm going broke. If I don't get help soon, and we don't get a grip on this soon, I will be out of business. I'm in my 50s, and I need to go find another job somewhere where someone will hire somebody in their 50s. That is it. Last week, we talked about the garage, where you go get your car fixed. He had to shut down for a week because he couldn't get results. They had a positive outbreak. Somebody tested positive. Who knows how they got it? But his whole staff, whole garage, big garage, had to go get tested. And in return, they're waiting for results. If you can't turn the test around quickly and get the results, he can't reopen. So he was down for a week. A week of lost business in a bad economy is not good for anybody. So if you fix the health problem, you fix the economy. And people saying, we've given up on controlling the virus.
we can't control the virus are just not in tune with America because we are fighters, all of us, red, blue, whatever state you're from, whatever bumper sticker you have, it's part of the American spirit. And that's what we have to get back to. This day in medicine, October 31st, 1749, a chemist named John Dalton read the first description of colorblindness. Now, colorblindness is, is fairly common. I mean, actually, one in 12 men have colorblindness, and, but only one in 200 women have colorblindness. And it's interesting that I found out that the most common is red-green colorblindness. And in that case, it's carried on an X chromosome. And that's why men are so commonly affected by it. But with lenses and, and science, and as we've moved through, we've been able to help a lot of people who have been colorblind and are colorblind now. So that first paper was presented in 1749. We're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to be back to discuss an article I was asked to discuss for UConn today. Playing tackle football at early ages not linked with worse concussion symptoms. We're going to go through that article and what it means to all of our listeners. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you once again today. Uh, our guest today, later in the second half of the program, is going to be Dr. Gregory Shangold. Uh, Dr. Shangold is the president of the Connecticut State Medical Society, and we're going to be talking about the effects COVID-19 has had on the medical profession and how it's affected the relationship and getting in to see your physician and getting help when you need it. As I mentioned, uh, an interesting article, uh, MedPage today came out with an article saying playing tackle football at early ages is not linked with worse concussion symptoms. Um, and the study was assessed based on short-term outcomes uh, of a first concussion only. Uh, when we go back and look at the data that I was asked to look at, um, the original article is being published in the journal Neurology, which is the Green Journal and the Journal of the American Academy of Neurology. And... What they looked at was college athletes who got concussed and how long it took them to recover and to see if that had any relation to having a concussion when playing youth tackle football. The average age of a concussion at the youth level was age 10. And what they found was that an athlete in college so years later, say eight years later or more, did not have a worsened recovery in terms of it taking longer for them to get back to their sport, even if they had a concussion at age 10. The problem with this study is that it gives the false impression that getting a concussion at the youth football level is not a big problem. And 
Nothing could be worse than saying that. Let's back up a little bit. This study helps when looking at a college athlete. Because when we look at a college athlete who's had a concussion, we want to get as much information as we can to get them better. So if we know they had a concussion as, as a child playing football, we could expect it would take longer. What they're saying is you don't need to expect that. They should get back in the normal period of time, which is 9 to 10 days after their new injury. What it does not look at is youth football. It doesn't look at the severity of a concussion in youth football or the number of concussions in youth football. Also, by fact that it looks at children or athletes when they're in college, right? it doesn't look then at all the athletes in between. Let me explain. Many children who suffer multiple concussions while playing youth football never play football again. They don't get to play college football because their career is shortened. So with that, if you believe you now have children who have the promise of going on and becoming a professional football player, you may be cutting their career short by subjecting them to football or any sport that leads to increased concussions. The goal here is not to have them isolate, don't play football, but there are ways of gaining football skills without actually hitting. Right? We're seeing the seven-man football being played now. Again, stresses, passing, catching, running, and it stresses building a team, right? Because that's what most of us get out of playing football or playing soccer or playing any other team sport is the concept of building a team. Later on in life, that may be a sales team. For a company you own it might be a team of physicians nurses and other staff to fight a virus okay it's the idea of building a team everybody moving in the same direction consensus building right so when you're an athlete on a team the goal is clear the goal is that you have to score points, you have to win the competition. Again, in life and in business and in academics, you need to build consensus and get everybody moving in the same direction. So I think this study was a good study. I think that they it is helpful when looking at college-age athletes and their past when you take a history. But it does not help us in the field of youth football and how we need to guide our children with that regard. Again, this should not be taken as I'm against youth football. Um, I, I'm against any sport that really leads to children hitting their heads repeatedly. And again, if you're going to play that sport, 
I was asked in the interview, what should you tell parents? I tell parents, similar to interviewing a physician, a teacher, you should be interviewing a coach. Who will be coaching your child? Who will Because often they are the only defense you have when it comes to your child being hurt on the field in any sport. So you really want to sit with that coach and interview them and get what their background is, what their philosophy is to winning. Is it a winning at all cost? What are they trying to accomplish with this team and with your child? It's very important. It's very important. I'm not saying winning isn't the goal here, but it's the winning at all costs. The coach that says, we're going to make your son or daughter tougher. When they say that, you need to run for the exit sign. Don't walk, run. So with that, um, we will continue to follow concussion and safety as we move through our programming and as we learn with science. A couple of short things. Uh, the Lilly antibody drug, uh, everybody knows about the antibody drugs, the monoclonal antibodies, the two, uh, Lilly and Regeneron. Um, both uh, have uh, now failed in terms of side effects in people who are severely ill. So at first, we were giving it, there's two populations we're using this in. People who are severely ill on high-dose oxygen and a respirator, and those who are barely ill, they're in the hospital and we're watching them. So these drugs appear to be working well without side effect in the milder cases, the cases where somebody's in the hospital but have not required aggressive pneumonia therapy. Okay, so those groups of patients still using it in. In the other groups, they have held off and are restudying it because of side effects. So that treatment seems to be a little bit on hold. The vaccine therapies appear to be moving along in terms of their studies. But again, uh, you know, that is the home run. That's the grand slam. It's the hole in one. So there's a lot we need to do while we're waiting for that. Another interesting article that came up in terms of dentistry, dentists are seeing a lot more patients coming in with grinding their teeth since COVID-19. Grinding your teeth is a reaction to stress. It's one we all have. But it appears to be wearing out people's teeth and leading to dental problems. So, again, uh, talk to your dentist. If you need to visit a dentist, get there. Uh, dentists have taken on so much expense. Uh, I spoke with my dentist a couple of weeks ago in terms of putting in new air filtration systems, PPE um, that has to be changed, uh, so many different systems put in place that they have had to take on the expense of to provide their care safely. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Gregory Shangold, um, who is president of the Connecticut State Medical Society, and we're going to be talking about the effects of COVID-19 on the medical profession. 
You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you today. Um, if you have questions for me, um, as always, I love getting your emails at info at alessimd.com. Uh, today, my guest is Dr. Gregory Shangold. Uh, Dr. Shangold and I have I've had the honor of working with him and working together in his role as head of the emergency department at Wyndham Hospital for over 30 years. Um, he is now the newly elected president of the Connecticut State Medical Society. He is a practicing physician who volunteers his time to take on roles like being president of the State Medical Society and advocating for patients. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tony. Great to be with you. Um, let's talk about COVID-19 and how it has affected our profession in the sense that it's harder. It, things have changed radically, right, from everything being shut down to trying to get back on board and creating a new environment for patients. Um, how is that working out for physicians? Just like everybody else in society, this has been a trying time. Uh, from Physicians have been as resolute as ever treating the physicians, but they've had to find new ways. So whether it was creating the telemedicine industry here so that people can have access to their doctors, learning to risk their lives and bringing the disease home to their families, especially at the beginning when we didn't understand it as much, certainly has increased the stress. And it is, it is, um, it's been very difficult, but we as a group, as physicians, want to be there for our patients and allow our patients to still have access to care and understand that their health care is what's really important. So several things have changed. Uh, it, we've switched a lot to telehealth uh, in many cases, and uh, we have done this under the protection of the state government from the standpoint of HIPAA uh, and its exception to using telemedicine to try and treat patients. Uh, many of the platforms we use are HIPAA secure, uh, but at times that doesn't work, and you have to resort to things like FaceTime that are not HIPAA secure. But that's just among several of the things that have come up. Now, there are several different executive orders that I don't necessarily understand. So if you could clarify 7U and 7V and what that means to my, our listeners today. So in regards to telehealth, the... Access to care, this is how we have stayed in touch with our patients. And so the rules weren't even necessarily developed, and they were getting developed, but it wasn't embraced by everyone. And this really became a necessity to stay in touch. So whether it had to do with reimbursement rules so that the insurance companies would pay physicians to have this service, or like you said, that we developed the privacy, but we had to adapt because it's one thing to talk to a 25-year-old on some video conferencing, but to have an 80-year-old uh, with whatever technology they have at home, it would need sometimes other means to, to reach them. Like you said, we had to be adaptable. Uh, 
7U and 7V um, address a lot of the medical malpractice issues. It's Connecticut has never been a favorable state for the medical malpractice. It's one of the reasons we, we tend not to attract a lot of physicians to the state compared to other states. But the governor did realize the importance of how things were changing. And so 7U and then clarified a little bit in 7V created a system where there was some protection for doctors as they were learning to make decisions based on the coronavirus. And so whether it had to do with specifically treating coronavirus or people not following up on regular scheduled care that they already that they had planned or needed, and then that leads to other bad outcomes, this protection was in there. But this is something that really needs to be accomplished in this legislative session that we get the legislature to immortalize these protections because they expire when the executive order expires. And I believe that even starts on November 9th, so within 10 days. You brought up a sensitive topic, and let's talk about it. Retaining physicians. We train a lot of physicians in the state of Connecticut. Um, at Yale, at the University of Connecticut, at Quinnipiac University, we are training physicians. Why don't they stay here? In general, young doctors are looking for a favorable environment to to practice medicine, and that has to do with a lot of different aspects. Uh, so there's some medical and some non-medical, but certainly one of the hallmarks that when we compare it to other states is our malpractice environment. There's very high uh, judgments that, that come down here in Connecticut, and we have very little protections compared to some of the novel uh, uh, bills that have been passed in other states. And it was clear with the executive order when, when this was passed that someone recognized that, that we need these extra protections, but this is a limited uh, repair, and so we need those permanent repairs uh, so that we can attract people in Connecticut. When Texas, over 10 years ago now, passed malpractice reform, they saw an influx of physicians to the point that it took nine months to get a medical license, and it increased that ac access to care for people. There were more on-call specialists. There was more doctors that were available. So every time that someone has to wait a, an enormous amount of time to get a hip replacement or to have some sort of procedure, that has to do with the availability of physicians within our state. And, uh, and some of the other things are payment for Medicaid and, uh, um, and just uh, the inequities that are sort of built into the system. Uh, somewhere along the way, I remember that we ranked somewhere very low among all 50 states in terms of retaining physicians. Um, uh, in addition to that, we have a high level of doctors who are retiring. I mean, what's this doing to our workforce? Again, Tony, everything comes down to the access to care for our patients. And so if we're not keeping new physicians, and I believe that number was 46 out of 50. So we train so many residents, and then they leave our state. And so when you rank us against all 50 states, we're 46 in that retention. And we have a, a aging physician population. We're one of the oldest 
uh, populations of physicians. And, and sometimes the people that want to argue this say, well, look how many licenses there are. But not ha- just having a license doesn't mean that you're still seeing patients or you've limited your practice. And, and that's even more with coronavirus, people limiting their practices. Uh, there was a national survey that showed 8% of physician practices have closed. And on a national level, that means 16,000 practices have closed. So you can imagine all those practices that saw patients now have to go to other places. And so telemedicine is going to be one of those uh, avenues, you know, where we can continue to see patients. uh, But we need to attract new physicians into the state as well. And, you know, I I think a lot of it is physicians saying, wait a second, this has become a big risk. It's become a big risk to uh, my family as well as myself uh, in terms of uh, being exposed to the virus. So right now, um, let me go into who is paying for all this? Let me explain. I, I mentioned a little bit before the break how dentists have had to redo their offices. Um, physicians have had to do the same in terms of um, buying, okay, not just receiving, buying more PPE, protecting their employees, working at home um, to some degree. All these technology platforms that we have to use to see patients now are not inexpensive by any means. So who sucks up that cost? So right now it's unclear. The, The... The federal government with Medicare actually made a code that allows you to put it onto a patient's charge that um, for these extra things. But most insurance companies are not paying that. There's also I, I, I haven't found uh, one that's paying it. Okay, so uh, anyhow, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Tony. I don't think anyone is, is paying for those sort of things. Now the insurance companies are making record profits here because people still paid their premiums, but people aren't going to access care. There was just this week, in fact, early this morning, I was reading an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and this year there was a 25 to 40 percent reduction, depending where they looked, of heart attacks and strokes being admitted to hospitals. So all of that care, they're collecting the premiums, but people aren't accessing the, the care. So that money is staying in the insurance industries. But for physicians, they are investing in the, into the infrastructure. They are investing into having the PPE and everything that they need, as well as all their employees. Now, half of physicians in Connecticut are employed by large systems, but that means the other half are small private businesses. They've try to access uh, funds through the PPP program that every other business has done. Uh, But sometimes it's insufficient, especially with a volume-driven business. If people aren't going to see their doctors, and we're seeing that, because only um, half of the excess deaths we're seeing now are related to coronavirus. The other deaths that we're seeing are people that are foregoing care and then this is leading to serious outcomes, as well as the substance abuse and the mental health uh, increases. So we're, we're seeing more opiate overdoses now than ever as, as that pandemic uh, continues to um, affect so many people throughout the state. So, Greg, I guess 
as we look at this, what are some of the solutions here? I mean, how do we how do we fix this going forward? What is what are we going to do to attract younger physicians? What should we be doing to keeping older physicians in practice? Um, one of the things I always uh, bark about is the fact that, you know, many older physicians are retirement age, but still want to see patients and volunteer their time. Yet physicians have to still pay for a full license, um, even if you want to go volunteer. So and that's like seven hundred and fifty dollars. So a lot of docs are actually giving up their licenses and not doing that. So what are we going to do as a state medical society to attract younger people and keep older physicians working and seeing people? So for where the, the state has control, they can do things that are favorable for physicians. So it goes to, like you were talking about, how do you maintain your license? What, what, a, what allows? So putting more education every year, more restrictions and more barriers and more obligations for physicians when other states don't have those uh, requirements is, is reasons people can, can move to other states. Uh, I think you said there's some novel out-of-the-box ideas where we can tap into the experience of some of the physicians that have cared for people for, for generations here and reduce their licenses. And, and this is why we want all doctors to belong to the Connecticut State Medical Society, because as we sort of can come together, we can advocate for those, those, those changes to, to happen in Hartford as, as we meet with these legislators and policymakers to come up with these things. But also realizing that we're an essential part of the community, both for businesses and the jobs we support and, and within the economy, but also to create those access to healthcare systems. So whether it's telehealth and to immortalize that or malpractice reform, as we talked about that, all of these things make it a favorable place to practice rather than a place where people are looking for other places. Just like the, this community of New York people are moving up to Connecticut because they find it more favorable than the city. We have to target those type of, of uh, of measures, you know, and and the state medical society is the largest organized group for physicians, are the ones to sort of lead the that that initiative up in Hartford with the policymakers. Greg, thank you. Uh, thanks for everything you do, not only in your practice as a physician, but as a physician leader in helping to create opportunities. Um, for physicians and create access for our patients. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, uh, Tony, and uh, uh, to all the physicians out there that have been heroic in this adventure, uh, I, I'm honored to serve with them, so thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back um, for a final wrap-up here on Healthy Rounds. We're back on Healthy Rounds. As we uh, wrap up the show, um, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about a comment that was made this week by the President of the United States, that doctors receive a $2,000 payment for putting COVID on a death certificate. No comment from this president could be more disgusting and more disgraceful 
It is an accusation against the same people who we all hailed as heroes, right? We all have hearts on our front lawn. Thanks for our heroes. Our heroes work here. Those same heroes are being humiliated by this president. The same physicians who saved his life are being humiliated and accused of a conspiracy that is of immense proportion, that involves every physician, probably every nurse, everybody who works on the front line would have to conspire to falsify this information. In 2016, we, the American people, were fooled. We were fooled into thinking that Donald Trump would be an effective president of the United States. Well, a wise man, my father, once taught me, you fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. It's time that we sent this fool home back to his mansion and start moving forward and uniting America. And that's what we're going to do. Next week on this show, we begin the revolution, the revolution of making health care better for every American. No matter who you voted for on Tuesday, we need to improve this health care system. I don't care who the president is next week. We are going to change this health care system. And it's going to start right here on Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Get out and vote. Your life depends on it. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.